Open your Bibles, if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're continuing in our study of the Corinthian letters. And um, the portion of Scripture we look at this morning, um, it addresses a couple of different subjects. Um, first, it will complete this prolonged discussion we've been looking at on the issue of meat offered to idols. Meat sold in the marketplace that had first been offered to idols and the issues that raised for the church. Um, and in that large subject, of course, questions about idolatry, questions about conscience, and questions about asking out of regard for the weaker brother or sister, and weaker in that sense, referring to issues of conscience. So Paul's going to wrap that up. It won't be his final word on the subject, but he will, in essence, wrap his argument up. And then in the same section, the discussion is going to shift to what he's going to look at next, which is the whole issue of the Lord's table, communion. Um, that's the second thing. He's going to talk about that. He's going to start to lay the groundwork for that. But then in kind of a surprising way, having talked about communion, he's going to come back to the issue of idolatry, which connects those two issues. The issue of the concerns with idolatry, meat sacrifice to idols, with our celebration of communion. And that may sound like an odd connection. Um, we'll, we'll try to look at that and try to figure out where Paul's going with that. So this, this passage we look at, these last several verses of chapter 10, are not just a transition, but it's a connection between these two issues. And so uh, without taking any more time, let's get right to the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, beginning in the 14th verse, and this is the New American Standard Translation. We're just going to read through verse 22, but we'll finish out the chapter as we go. So Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we share, or rather which we bless, a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifice as sharers in the altar? What do I mean then, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that the idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons? Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? Father, we thank you for your word. And as we look to it this morning, Father, in this uh, really critical passage, because it speaks uh, in a very real way, Father, to situations we face and face today, Lord. So we pray that our hearts and minds would be open uh, as it is spoken, as it is heard, to the truth you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Paul begins the section with words he's used before. He says, flee from idolatry. And that's the idea that connects all these issues together. First, as I said, he's going to talk about the Lord's table, communion, which is the focus of the next chapter. He's going to return to the issue of idolatry, eating and meat, eating of meat. And then he'll go back to the issue of conscience, especially that of the other person and tie them together. So let's see if we can follow Paul. First of all, the Lord's table. Verses 16 and 18, he refers to the cup and the bread. He's very clearly referring to communion um, as, as we just practiced it this morning. Now, one thing we always have to be really careful to do whenever we run into a topic like this or Paul is talking about something like this is our tendency 
is to, as we visualize what he's talking about, is to read our experience into what he's talking about. And of course, that's not going to give us an accurate picture. We want to do our best to get the picture as they experienced it, because that's exactly what he's talking about. So we're going to talk a little bit more. We've already done, we're going to talk a little bit more about how, what, was the, what was the environment? How did the Corinthians celebrate communion, the Lord's table, to get a better understanding of what he's talking about? Um, we know from the Corinthian letter um, and from things outside the letter as well that communion for the Corinthians, the Lord's table, was celebrated as part of a larger meal. Some scholars have called it the love feast. Uh, essentially, it was a first century potluck, right? They'd all come together, they'd bring their food, they'd eat together, they'd worship, they'd celebrate, and they'd have communion, and that, that was what they did. And it had become a problem. We'll talk about that in chapter 11. But the simple fact that they had a meal, uh, they worshipped, um, they celebrated the goodness of God, what they had in common, what God had done for them, and, and then they again had communion. The fact that they did that presented a very unique problem for the Corinthians that is totally foreign to us. And for this reason, we probably don't even think about it. We maybe have never uh, thought about this before. But there are, at a completely superficial level, bold that word, underline that word, or you'll completely misunderstand me. But at a completely superficial level, there are some similarities between communion as they shared it and what was going on in the pagan temples. Because remember, as I said before, this is a church full of first-generation Christians, right? All of these, at least the adults in the church, I mean, the church hadn't been around long enough for there to be any second-generation Christians. They were all saved out of their paganism, right? So they're all familiar with what went on in the pagan temples. That's the worldview they grew up with, okay? They got that visual, right? And there is a certain amount of, again, totally superficial similarity. Again, there was a meal. There was worship, there was the elements of sacrifice. All of these things provided just enough common ground between what they had come from and what they were doing as to provide the opportunity for some Christians, some confusion, right? Now as, they're, used to, they're used to the dynamic in the temple. Everybody gets together, everybody has a meal, you know, they sacrifice, we've talked about all this, they sacrifice some of the meat, that went to the God, and then they enjoyed the meal. The meal that went to the God, what happened to it? He was, or she was eating that too. They were literally feeding the deity. And they were sitting at a table with the deity. That's the whole idea. Their festival, their feast, included the deity. And then they were worshiping. As a, and then, of course, in the pagan temples, then they got up and all the ungodliness, you know, all the immorality was going on too. So that's what they're used to. Now they come to the church, they're part of the church, and there's reference to sacrifice, there's elements of sacrifice, there's a common meal shared, right? There's some real room for some confusion there. There's some loss of the distinction between what had happened. And a big part of that, and here's why this is important to note, in the mind of a first century pagan, the exclusivity of their relationship to their God was, was, was a non-issue. It just wasn't a big deal, right? For, for a first century pagan to go from one temple to the other was no big deal. The relationship in the pagan mind between the worshiper and the deity is based on, on what? 
not making them mad, accommodating them, trying to win their favor, right? The idea that your God is going to be good to you just because he's a great guy, eh, that didn't work, right? You're trying to appease your deity. You don't want him mad. And, and the most you can hope for is maybe even manipulate him a little bit to do your thing. You're schmoozing, basically. Trying to schmooze your God. That's the whole idea, right? So you're going to have a big party, and you're going to invite your friends, and you're going to have a big sacrifice to whatever deity is in charge of fishing, right? Well, then tomorrow, your neighbor who's a farmer is going to do the same thing. And he's going to invite you to his festival. You're going to go. It's no big deal. As long as you make sure that the greater portion of your devotion is with the guy that controls fishing. See, that's how the first century mind works. That's how this, you know, paganism worked, right? So the exclusivity that we associate with worship is not there, right? I mean, I don't think most of us would celebrate communion and worship the Lord and then tomorrow, you know, be doing something, something else, you know, go to an Islamic center and enter wholeheartedly into that. We understand that doesn't work. You might go there to learn, but you're not going there as an act of worship. We understand as believers that doesn't work that way, right? They don't have that understanding. They're not coming from that. And, you know, we forget, we forget. I don't, I don't know about anybody else, but, you know, when I came to the Lord, it wasn't like a switch was thrown and my entire old unsaved worldview went away and I just instantly downloaded a Christian worldview. No, it's a process. It's a process of learning the difference between what I used to believe and what I believe now. So for these early believers coming out of paganism into the Corinthian church, there's a real potential for some confusion, right? Leaving a pagan background, coming into the new world, and for some, the idea that the God to whom they had turned, the God who had saved them, who had redeemed them, who had filled them, for some that he was the only God, that's not, that's not there yet. They just see him as being bigger, better, if the case need be, better, you know, whatever you needed. This new God was just bigger and better, but not exclusively the God. That's going to take some time. So there's real potential for some confusion. That's in the Gentile part of the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was also, had a large percentage of Jews. They don't have that problem. They come from a worldview. They are perfectly cognizant that there is but one God. And now they're trying to mingle together in this large love feast that's going on, this big church potluck, with people that just think, well, that God's one God of many gods. For the Jewish believer, that sets their hair on fire. There's no room for that idea at all. So you've got some real potential for conflict, some real potential for chaos. I hear a lot of people say, oh, I wish we were like the early church. I wish we were just like the first century church because it was so great. I am so glad I am not. The chaos. You know, we use, in our fellowship, if you've looked at the brochure, or you've been around, you know, that we use the Apostles' Creed as our essential statement of faith. It's pretty basic. One of the reasons we use it is just about everybody can agree on it. It took the church like four centuries to get that figured out. It took the church centuries to come to that much basic agreement about what's what, who this Jesus actually is. So in the first century, there were still a whole lot of questions that hadn't been answered. They, were still, they didn't even have the book together yet. They just had letters circulating the Apostle Paul writing and showing up every now and then. 
So there's all kinds of room for confusion and questions, right? Talk about a volatile situation. They had it. They really did, right? They really had it. So the Apostle Paul is going to straighten all this out. His issue of eating food offered in pagan temples and the nature of the Lord's table and how those two were so very different, right? You know, when we gather around the Lord's table with our 21st century, 2100 years to figure this out, you know, what are the kind of questions we have in the church of today? Okay, is Jesus, is it actually his body? By faith, are the elements actually transformed into his body? They don't look like it, but if you believe by faith, that's what they do. Or is he just present with the body? Um, that as we receive the elements, we receive him with the body. Or are they just symbols, but so perfect in their symbolism that when we receive them, we are receiving. I mean, that's like the extent of our disagreement. First century believer, like, are you kidding me? You're fighting over that? You're that far and you still can't? You know. No, our, our disagreements are so minor compared to theirs. Yeah, they're, they're important. I'm not making light of them. But compared to where the first century church was, we're in great shape. We're in great shape, right? The point being this, the point being this. The question isn't just how close to the real thing, to Jesus, the elements are. The question is, how close to him are we? That's the question communion brings to us. And that transcends 2,100 years of questions and doubt and discussion. It's not how close are the elements to him, it's how close to him are we. Because when we receive the elements, regardless of our theology of communion, regardless of what we might think of it, the very fact that we receive us puts us all on a common plane. That's where Paul's going here. We all receive of the table. We all bring the exact same need, our sin and we all receive the exact same benefit, our salvation. The details are different, but that's the exchange. Our sin is righteousness. We receive it. And it puts us into common fellowship with one another. Again, what was Paul's biggest concern throughout this entire letter? All these details he's dealing with, it's not the details, it's the division they caused. His biggest concern is the division in the church. Paul doesn't want the church divided, right? Isn't the specifics of the issue that have divided the church? It's the division itself. Now, in verse 19, Paul goes back to this issue of meat sacrifice to idols, and in doing it, he introduces a whole new idea. And remember, the whole question had been, some people are saying, I can go to the meat market, I can buy the meat sold in the meat market, I don't care if it was offered to a demon, in the or to a false god in the temple first, because I know that those false gods are nothing, right? So it's okay to eat the meat. Other folks were saying don't eat the meat, that whole dynamic. Well, Paul introduces a whole new concept here at the end of verse, in verse 20. Now, I, he says, verse 19, what do I mean then that a thing sacrificed to an idol is anything or that the idol is anything? No, verse 20. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not to God. I don't want you to be sharers in demons. Now, that doesn't shake us up because most of us have been around the church long enough. We're used to people talking about demons and discussion of demons or reality. This is the first time this gets brought up. So this is new ground for a lot of these Corinthians. Like, wait a minute. You mean that thing that was going on down there at the temple to whatever, that's not like just a false god bogus, it's actually a demon? Paul's saying, yeah. 
That is a vile, unclean spirit you were doing business with. Stop doing it. Stop doing it. The point being, that's why you can't do both. That's why as a Christian, again, if we can get into the mind of the first century Christian, at Corinth, it would not have been a big deal to go to church, share communion, and then on Monday trip down to Poseidon's temple and do something there. Paul said, no, you cannot do that. You cannot do that. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Obviously, physically, you can do it. You can be here Sunday and go there Monday. But by the very nature of doing it, one invalidates the other. You really can't do both. One of them is vacated. One of them is invalidated, right? For some Christians, this is brand, I mean, some in Corinth, this is brand new information. And Paul is affirming that, yeah, you can eat the meat, but be knowledgeable who you're doing business with when you do that, right? Because he says, I don't want you to be sharers with demons, right? And he offers two reasons for this concern. Verse 21, again, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. That's their words. He's quoting their words back to them. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Paul is introducing two key words here for the Corinthian believer who's trying to figure all this stuff out. See, that's the issue. That's why this speaks to us so much, is they are set in a context, and they are presented with very difficult questions, and they're struggling how to figure it out, aren't we? I mean, our issues are different. The questions we face are different. But daily, we, are, we deal with questions, what do I do next? How do I make my Christianity work in this situation? Well, Paul says, here are some questions, here are some answers for you. He says, what is profitable and what edifies? Profitable means to bring things together. We talked about that relative to conscience, right? To bring things together so they make sense. If I'm dealing with a question of what do I do next, I'm dealing with a question of conscience, I don't know what to do next with my faith, I'm in a situation at work, I ask the question, well, what is consistent with what I believe? What makes everything come together? Or if I, if I choose option B, is that going to draw me away from my core belief? It's not bringing things together. It's tearing things down. What edifies? What builds up? Am I edified? Is my brother or sister in Christ edified? These are the questions I need to be asking. That gives me tools to ask when I'm dealing with these questions, right? Verse 22, Paul comes to the real danger of, of, of not getting this distinction, of letting things mingle like this. He says in verse 22, do we want to make him jealous? Is that our goal? Now remember, remember the worldview they're coming from. You approach your God in terms of appeasement and manipulation. Making him jealous actually might not be a bad idea if I can provoke him to do what I want him to do. Paul's saying that doesn't work with our God. That simply does not work. He's quoting almost directly from Deuteronomy 32, 21. They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Provoking God to jealousy is never a smart thing. It just brings his judgment, which connects this whole idea of how a people relate to God. Right? Verse 23, Paul returns to the Corinthians' own argument. Again, all things are lawful, not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, not all things edify. We should always be seeking our profit and our edification. Profit by that meaning spiritual profit. What strengthens me in my Christian walk? Edify. What builds us up? This speaks to the issue that the Corinthian church was dealing with, 
and it speaks to us. This is why division was so problematic for Paul, because division never is profitable. Division never builds up. Okay? What is essential? To build up. So he says in verse 24, and here's where he really gets to the point that we can start applying it. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. For the apostle, that's the bottom line. For us, that's the bottom line. Not seeking our own good, but that of our neighbor. Of course, the challenge with that is putting it into practice. Because the way you go about doing that is not always real clear, right? can't get messy in real life. And so in verses 25 to 29, Paul gives us a real-life example from the Corinthians how to do that. How to promote the welfare of the other person while not completely neglecting ourselves. And he says this. You can read it, but I'll kind of give you a synopsis. Uh, your friend invites you to his house for dinner. You know he's pagan, but he's your friend. You're trying to witness to him, right? You want to be a positive influence. So you go to his house, and besides that, your friend grills a mean steak. Dinner's always good at his place. So you go there. Nothing is said about where the meat came from. So you're in the clear. So you enjoy dinner. You have a chance to share your testimony a little bit. Everything's good. You leave, right? The next day at work, though, this well-intended Christian confronts you. Now, this, this all comes, comes right out of... Uh, let's just go ahead and read the text. Uh, verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you, you wish to go eat anything set before you without asking questions of conscience sake, the whole time you're praying, I pray he doesn't tell me where the meat came from. God answers that. You don't know. You're in the free and clear. But if anyone should say to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols. Do not eat it for the sake of the one who informs you and for conscience sake. Oh, darn, he told me he sacrificed it. I can't eat it. If he doesn't say that, you're in the free and clear. I mean, is this practical day-to-day -day stuff or what? For them, it was. Okay, now he says in verse 29, this is the key verse, I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? Verse 29, I mean your own conscience, not your own conscience, but the other man's, for why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? Okay, That verse really threw me off for a long time. I couldn't make any sense out of it. Did a little research. Great 19th century theologian, Irish guy by the name of Fawcett, said, in order to understand that verse 29, you have to understand there's three parties involved. There's three parties involved. There's the other guy, the guy that invited you to dinner. There's you, right? And then there's the another person. What Fawcett pointed out is that that word for another is a completely different word than other. So there's the other guy, guy that's mentioned first, that's your neighbor or your friend that invites you to dinner. There's you, and then the another person at the end of the verse, that's a third person. So you went to the guy's house, he didn't say where the meat came from, you enjoyed dinner, you go to work the next day, and a third person shows up, well-intending Christian. We all know him, right? Um, I hope you. Re I heard that you went to Dimitri's house last night. Yeah, that dinner was great. I even had a chance to share my faith. Don't you know that Dimitri gets all of his meat from the meat market, and it's all been sacrificed in a, in a pagan temple? You really shouldn't be eating that guy's meat. How do you respond to that? You know, you're trying to navigate what it is to be a Christian in a very complex situation and you're doing your best, and then you get this totally unsolicited help that is not constructive at all. Have any of you ever experienced anything like that in your Christian walk? Yeah. How do you respond? 
1 Thessalonians 4.11 works great. I know a lot of people in this fellowship have done a lot of scriptural memorization. Some of you know far better than I. Anybody know what 1 Thessalonians 4.11 says? It's one of my favorites. What? Mind your own business. It comes right out of the Bible. As far as I know, that's the first place that's actually written like that, so you can source it. Mind your own, right? Paul says that we should, we should aspire, lead a quiet life, mind our own business, work with our own hands so that we won't be a burden to anybody. Why? So that we will not discredit the gospel. That's all part of our testimony. So when you're struggling to share your faith and work through these issues and some Christian comes along to try to help him, Try to find a gracious way. Maybe just direct him to 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Let him read it for himself. All right? But that's the answer. Mind your own, right? Verses 31 through 33, Paul concludes the matter with three absolute statements. And this is so helpful because when we're in these issues of life, trying to figure this stuff out, absolute statements are so helpful. Number one, whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. That's your first standard. What in this situation brings glory to God? That's what I'm going to do. That's the gold standard. Number two, give no offense either to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. And that offense means to put an obstacle in somebody's way. What can I do in this situation that is the least obstacle or hopefully no obstacle, but rather adorns the gospel to draw people to Christ? That's what I'm going to do. And then he says, finally, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many so that they may be saved. What do I do in this situation that ultimately leads to the other person being saved? It's that simple. That's always the goal. Uh, years ago, when um, Pastor Joyce and I were in Huna, we were having, we were talking for some reason with the Salvation Army officer. And like most people, I associate Salvation Army with bell ringers and thrift stores, and I love them both, right? Okay. Um, and we made some comment to that effect, like we'd never actually been in a Salvation Army church before. Boy, did we get an earful. This guy just like went off. The Salvation Army is first and foremost a church. And like 10 minutes into it, I'm ready to say, can you just chill? I got the point, right? He wasn't done. And he went on for like another 10 minutes. And by the end, I realized he was right. Because the Salvation Army has all that other really cool stuff, it's easy to forget why they're there. It's easy for them to forget why they're there. They wanted to make sure that every person that was in that village that was in any way associated with the Salvation Army knew that the first and foremost reason they exist was to lead people to salvation. And he was spot on. He was spot on. It's always about bringing people to salvation. What else in the world are we doing? So I ask myself, and wrap up with this, I ask myself, in any situation I'm involved with, if I'm not sure what to do, what brings glory to God in this matter? Which choice? How do I move forward in this in a way that doesn't set a stumbling block before others, in a way that doesn't discredit my God or my church or the gospel and the people I, I care about? And how does my action here influence those around me? How does it move them towards God? Those are the questions I ask. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. And um, Father, I'm so glad that in your word, when we look at it, we realize that your people have, have always had questions and doubts and internal conflicts and issues and things to resolve. So Father, it makes, us feel a little, makes me feel a lot better about where we are, Lord.
But mostly, Father, I am reminded of the reality and the uniqueness and the absolute sufficiency of what you did through your son in the table that we share. And I pray, Father, that would be the central thought in all that we do in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.